Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. Woohoo! And I'm Dr. Emma Dilemma. Wow! Yeah, coming at you fresh in October. <laughs> it is. It's finally gotten cold here. Oh, it was like nice. 100 degrees yesterday what? or two days ago, and now it's in the 70s, and it's wonderful. Yeah, 100 degrees, dang. It's like just gotten cold here too, but it was, you know, 70, 80 last week and now 50, Ugh. 60. Yeah. It's kind of nice. Nice, nice. Yeah. It feels very fallish. The cold is coming, I can tell, but, you know, I'm ready this well, time. Well, the cold for. Oh, wait, you're in Detroit. I was thinking you were in Austin. I was like, why is it 40 to. Like, why is it 50 <laughs> degrees? No, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No. Austin's probably still pretty hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, you're going to get full seasons this year. I know. And by full seasons, uh, I we mean a very long winter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With little seasons in between. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll see. You'll, you'll see how it goes. Yeah. Maybe it won't be so bad because of climate change. <laughs> oh, yeah. Climate change is helping everything. <laughs> yeah. The one um, good thing about climate change. <laughs> yeah, I had a professor in college that we he was talking about climate mitigation. He was like, well, we'll have palm trees on the poles. Yeah. And I was like, that's not, we one, we won't, and two, that's not good. Because if there's palm trees on the poles, then everything else is literally on fire. Yeah, or and dead. Or right. underwater. And underwater then, and, and on fire. Yeah, and then we're all... Uh, trying to hide under the palm trees, every mm-hmm. person in the world. Well, this is a good yeah. start. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> Semphatal, the Women in Science History podcast, <laughs> uh, where we talk about how scary climate change is. <laughs> um, okay, Emlyn. So, Alex and I, this is relevant. Alex and I bought a a digital antenna for our TV so that we could start watching, like, PBS and the news, like, free channels, basically, you know? Nice. And there's a channel um, that we get now called The Laugh Factory, and it plays two shows, from what we can tell. One of them is According to Jim, and the other one is Home Improvement. (laughs) Oh, my so, How can it only play those two shows? I don't know, but we've watched quite a bit of it, despite knowing <laughs> how problematic they are for this time now. Um, I mean, Home Improvement's slightly less problematic, but still has some of that masculinity, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, speaking of Home Improvement, did you ever watch that show, Home Improvement? Um, only in a kind of smattering way. I don't think I consistently watched it Hmm, okay because i was gonna ask you like okay so what was tim the tool man taylor known for (laughs) do you remember Um, at all (laughs) he was improving his home 
that's actually not uh, far off from where I'm trying to go. He was always trying to improve things, right? Okay. He was specifically <laughs> always trying to give things more power. Do you remember that about... <laughs> I remember literally, I'm on, like, the Wikipedia page right oh now God, of Home Improvement, so no, it. I do not, not remember. <laughs> he was basically, like, so a bit in the show is that he's always trying to, like, improve appliances around the house, like the washing machine, okay. the garbage disposal, and he does it by making them, like, more powerful so that okay. you could, like, stick a whole hockey stick down the garbage disposal and it works, you know, which is totally unnecessary, right? And um, in reading about today's <laughs> scientist, <laughs> I got some Tim the Toolman Taylor vibes. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Except that uh, he was a klutz, you know. He would improve things to the point they didn't work, I guess, so not really improving them. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Were you just playing home improvement noises? Yeah, well, I just want to play this for a hot sec. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's 14 minutes of every grunt from home improvement. That's insane. Who would take the time to do that? Oh my gosh. Um... Okay, so sh- so the woman we're going to talk about today likes to improve things, but less clumsily and probably with less grunts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's just super handy, constantly working on cars. I don't know. I just kept thinking about home improvement. I just have Tim on the brain. <laughs> it's tool. It's Tim. Tim tool time. Yeah, her tool time. Can't help yourself. Okay. Um, all right, let me get into it, because this has taken way too long, too much talk about home improvement. <laughs> but, way too much okay. talk about home improvement. So today's lady of the hour um, is Beatrice Schilling, who uh, was nicknamed Tilly, and I think most people called her Tilly. So it's kind of okay. like Tilly, the tool woman, Schilling. Is our is she lady of the hour on motorcycles in a le- yes. in a leather coat a lot? Yes. Okay, yes, I know kind of who you're talking right. about. Right, she's ooh, I'm excited. I know I'm excited. she's on a lot of lists, but you know, yet again, it's kind of one of these things where I couldn't find a lot of a lot more details than just like short articles about her. But I tried to put together you know enough of a story for the pod. Yeah. There is an autobiography, or not an autobiography, there's a biography of her called Negative Gravity, A Life of Beatrice Schilling that was published in 2003, but it's so rare now, I guess, that it sells for like 40 to $100. And so I- <laughs> Wait, so you didn't, shell out, you didn't shell out for Schilling? I don't even know where to buy it. Like, I would have had to buy it, you know, weeks ago on Amazon or something, mm-hmm. right? before i just didn't think of it in time so i'm sure that contains a lot more details for anyone who is interested maybe your library cares carries it but i don't i kind of doubt it unless you live in england um because she's from england (laughs) gotcha okay so uh tilly or beatrice Schilling tilly was born on march 8th in 1909 in waterloo hampshire in england 
And she had three sisters. Her father was a butcher. I didn't read anything about her mother, but I, I'm guessing her mother kind of took care of the family. Did things. Yeah. And at a very young age, she became interested in engines. So she would play with uh, model toy sets called Meccano, which were sort oh. of the Legos of the time. But mm -hmm. they were specifically designed for boys to use to learn about mechanical engineering. So you could buy basically sets and put them together to make specific things like a model car. Um, so just like little parts of a small car, you know. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Or you could just buy sets that had a variety of parts and make whatever you wanted. But mm -hmm. she loved playing with these Meccano sets from an early age. And nice. when um, her sisters would basically, they like would have bike races, like just on their pedal bikes, you know, not motorbikes. Mm -hmm. And her sisters gotcha. would always beat her. And so when she was 14, she got her first motorcycle so that she nice. could win in races against her sisters. Um, would we call that a fair <laughs> Fair fight at that point? I don't know. I think she just liked to go fast, and she wanted to go faster, uh -huh. and that was just kind of her attitude, you know? <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, and she loved this motorcycle. Her first one was a two-stroke Royal Enfield, for anyone who loves motorcycles and knows what that means. And she would continually nope. work on it to make it go faster. So this is where I'm getting mm -hmm. these vibes of Tim the Toolman Taylor. Like, uh -huh. basically trying to soup up things constantly her whole life. And she showed an early aptitude and fondness for engineering. And when she was 17, she nabbed an apprentice apprenticeship with a woman named Margaret Patridge who had a small company that installed electricity around homes in England and who was also involved in the Women in Engineering Society, which is pretty like, okay. you know, this is the 1920s now, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty, I didn't realize there were women in engineering societies then, you know? Yeah, no, me either. So, um so Margaret, with Margaret, Tilly began learning about electrical engineering and, you know, she lived at a YWCA hostel and worked with Margaret to install electricity around the city she was living in. Cool. And when Margaret saw her passion and excitement, she encouraged Tilly to pursue a degree at Manchester University. Okay. And so, and Tilly did that, and she was one of two women students in her class, though I couldn't find how big her class actually was, but mm -hmm. still. So, let's see. In 1932, Tilly graduated from Manchester with a degree in electrical engineering, and then went on to pursue her master's in mechanical engineering, uh, which she graduated with the next year. And nice. I couldn't find her thesis or anything, but in a BBC article, I found they say that for her master's degree, she studied piston temperatures of high-speed diesel engines. All right. <laughs> yeah. I feel like she should be working for NASCAR. I know. I mean, so I got to say there's a lot of, like, 
car parts and references in this that I was just like, uh-huh. man, I don't know anything about cars. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, see, this is where I needed Tim the Toolman Taylor to help me. <laughs> he would have told you what was up. Totally. Um, I just kept turning to Alex and being like, what exactly is a carburetor? Like, I've heard of these things, but I couldn't imagine them, you know, whatever. And he doesn't yeah. know, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know anything about cars or not really? Um, no, not that much. I wish I knew more, but it's one of those things that, like, I only have so much time in the I day know. to learn things and it's just never been my priority right i try to know enough that i can keep my car alive yeah i feel like you really Mm. have to like work on cars continuously to learn Mm -hmm. that stuff and yeah yeah there's just no time for that now there's too much tv (laughs) (laughs) there's too much tv to see Uh, Uh, anyway um okay but So after graduating with her master's, she went to work for an electrical engineering company, Ferranti, where she was kind of known for, you know, putting on her leather jacket and boots and riding her motorcycle to work every day. Yeah. And a couple years after that, she took a new job as a technical writer with the Royal Aircraft Establishment, which is part of the British, um, what's it called? Not the army. What's the one with the airplanes? <laughs> the Air Force, <laughs> um, I guess. I mean, it's called... Air Force, yep. Yeah, yep. it's called the Royal Aircraft Establishment, which is like the British okay. Air Force, I think. Gotcha, um, gotcha. And so, even though she had so much experience with electrical engineering, she started as a technical writer, maybe because she was a woman or... Maybe just because that was a job that was available at the time. I, yep. you know, mm-hmm. don't really know. But um, her job with them was in a town that was much closer to what's called the Brooklyn's Motorcycle Racetrack, which was uh-huh. the world's first motorcycle racing track. And she would basically spend a, her free time engineering her bike to be extremely fast and then take it to the track to race it. <laughs> Did she race in competitions or just, like, use that track to go see how fast she could go? I think she raced in competitions, and on one of the races, she circled the track at 106 miles per hour, which is, like, about 170 kilometers per hour for anyone across the pond who's listening, (laughs) or in literally any other country that's listening, which won her the Brooklyn's gold star for being the fastest woman on the track. And the gold star, I think was like the biggest, the awards that they gave to like great racers on the racetracks. So nice. Yeah. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. I think she was really proud of that. Once again. Yeah. A thing I never want to do. Dude. No. Uh, -uh. but I'm glad others are so inclined. I don't think I would ever ride on a motorcycle. Maybe around the block or no. something. But I'm just too scared. Yeah, I'm not a speed demon. No. I would have to be in like a full body <laughs> suit. Yeah, I'm not a huge uh, adrenaline junkie. Though I do like... No. I mean, I like adventure and stuff. But it's... 
it also makes me extremely nervous. Anyway, so <laughs> let's see. It was around this time, too, that she met her husband, George Naylor, who also loved to work on cars and soup them up to make them go faster. And um, there's a rumor that she would not marry him until he also won a Brooklyn's Gold Star. <laughs> <laughs> that Those are some high standards, yeah. and I like it, and I can get behind it. Yeah. Oh, and he also worked at the Royal Aircraft Establishment. So they were okay. just like two peas in a pod, basically. Two peas in one very, very fast, dangerous pod. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's see. We're getting into the 30s now. So as with many of the women we discuss, World War II played a large role in Tilly's career and success as an engineer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's the late 1930s, and Britain is beginning to prepare for war against Germany, and part of these efforts involved building fighter planes. Um, and so they had a couple of new planes. One was called the Hurricane, another was called the Spitfire, which I guess is a pretty famous fighter plane for people who study fighter planes. I don't know. There are all these things that were like, articles i saw that were like why are we so obsessed with the spitfire and i'm like who is this article for (laughs) who is (laughs) obsessed with the spitfire i don't know um but the spitfire was specifically designed to compete with germany's top fighter plane the luftwaffe i don't actually know how to say that oh yeah yeah yeah. oh (laughs) wait i've heard of it have you Oh, no. (laughs) I think so. Oh, okay. I don't know. I I don't know. And let's see. It was... Have a little faith in me. I know things. Yeah, I thought you were just joking or something, because I was like, who's heard of these things? Anyway. No, no, I haven't. I was thinking of Lufthansa, the... Oh, the airline? (laughs) Yeah. It has Luft in it. Those are fighter planes. Um, That's funny, though. (laughs) Uh, okay, so the Spitfire designed by R.J. Mitchell was designed to be an interceptor, which is a plane that kind of acts as a defense against attack planes, like a bomber plane or something, you know? Okay. So mm-hmm. if another attack plane is coming in, the Spitfire will try to scare that one away so it can't shoot or whatever. <laughs> this is my my interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. And it became the most Seems legit. yeah, it became the most widely used fighter aircraft by the Brits throughout World War II. But in its early days, both the Hurricane and the Spitfire had a major issue, which is that whenever the plane uh, went into a nosedive, you know, basically in defense of an enemy fighter plane, you know, the pilots would often have to do these quick maneuvers like a nosedive. Mm-hmm. If it went into a nosedive, the plane's engines would stop, and they could only start it up again if they did this weird half turn, um, sort of upwards, and then go back down again. Um, Oh, God. Yeah, so this was, like, very dangerous for pilots, first of all, and, like, doing these maneuvers and then having the engines stop while they're doing mid-maneuver, and then... It was also made the planes pretty ineffective as interceptor planes if, you know, halfway through a nosedive, the pilot had to stop the maneuver, 
go around and then try again, basically, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, pilots were, you know, dying during these maneuvers, essentially. And so those that were seeing their friends be killed because of this problem with the Spitfire and the hurricane uh, began asking the engineers at the RAE where Tilly worked to find a solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany didn't have this problem because they were using fuel injection to run their planes, whatever that means. <laughs> I yeah, looked it yeah, up yeah. and I was like, okay, so that has something to do with when the fuel and the air mix, but it's just like, okay. yeah. Um, gotcha. But the Spitfire, they couldn't use fuel injection. I guess the injectors were like hard to come by at the time. And, mm-hmm. uh, and technically, they were running on carburetor technology, which, if okay. it could work, it would make the planes more powerful um, mm-hmm. for that time, I guess. Okay. So, Tilly had been working for a few years now with the RAE. And by this time, by I think this is about 1940, she had been promoted to senior technical officer in engineering. Um, nice. And everybody knew her as, like, this awesome engineer who, like... Loved working on machines, and, you know, this was her passion, basically. Yeah. Upon hearing about the problem with the nosedive and the Spitfires, she figured out why the engines were stopping. So, mm-hmm. essentially, the negative G-force caused by the nosedive would cause fuel to be pushed up into like away from the engines and into something called a float chamber in the carburetor so the engines just weren't receiving fuel because it was moving uh because of the (laughs) g-forces okay i don't really know what a g-force is gravity like (laughs) this g-force yeah i mean it's this is not a good description but i mean if you think about roller coasters it's like how much I think pressure right. is put on you by moving really fast in different directions, and so like yeah, yeah, it can move the liquids in yeah strange ways. Exactly, like the liquids in my stomach when I go on a roller coaster. Yeah, exactly. They come up closer to your esophagus. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like what's happening here in the carburetors, like they're. Uh, instead of the liquid staying in the stomach, giving you fuel, they're moving up out, basically. Oh, <laughs> um, no good. Yeah. So she figured out that that's why the planes would stop while they were mid-nosedive, or the engines would stop. Um, and she then determined that, essentially, if they could restrict that flow so that it's not flowing up into these float chambers then, you know, things should be okay. And to do this, she designed this really tiny device, um, which was kind of just a disc with a hole in it that would restrict, like, a metal disc with a hole in it that they could place into the engines or the carburetor um, that would effectively restrict flow of fuel to the floating chamber. Okay. It couldn't restrict flow entirely because that would break the carburetor, but it would Uh restrict flow enough that the engine could still receive fuel for a period of time. And so 
After designing it in 1941, she traveled with a team of engineers to a couple bases to fit it to the planes to see if it worked. And it did, and it was so popular with pilots that they started calling it, this is terrible, they started calling it Miss Schilling's Orifice. <laughs> what the fuck? Because it's a disc with a hole in the middle. <laughs> what the fuck? Isn't that horrible? Yeah, no, I, I but you, what, but please don't call it an orifice. Yeah, I mean, or Tilly's Orifice. Like, horrible. T- Tilly's it's Ooh. hard to tell. Well, I mean, that makes me want to never make anything that has a hole in it, just so no nicknames could be made and, like, about it. I can't tell if she thought this was funny. Like, was she in on the joke and was like, she just had a crass sense of humor, like the guys or something. It's still very sexist, no matter what. Um Yeah, just let's not. Let's just not, you know. By rule, let's not call things orifices that are just let's not um but that makes me very uncomfortable the word orifice is just too much (laughs) Mm -hmm. (sighs) okay so technically though it's called the rae restrictor okay (laughs) so we could call it that from now on um, yeah. However, the device wasn't a perfect solution. It was more a temporary solution that they could just manufacture and put into the planes, you know, right away so that the pilots, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but once they realized that this worked, she went back to the RAE and with other engineers. Um, basically, the reason why it wouldn't work long term is because if a plane experienced negative g-forces for longer periods of time it wouldn't stop the flow entirely of the fuel away from the engines gotcha but they figured out you know in the next year or two um a better long-term solution which led to the invention or was the invention of the rae hobson injection carburetor which was a slightly more complicated device that they could fit to the planes I'm glad they did. They make any fun nicknames for that? No, because it's probably like a man leading that team or something, you know. Okay. Um, I'm glad. Yeah, but for her work on the RAE restrictor and the RAE Hobson injection carburetor, which both helped tremendously in um, leading the Brits to victory in World War II. Uh, nice. Yeah, Tilly received. Do, 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 do. She received the Order of the British Empire in 1948. Nice. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. That's some big stuff. Yeah. And I guess like, and even though, so I read that the restrictor wasn't actually fitted to very many planes, but mm-hmm. because she figured out you know, what was going wrong in the planes and how they could possibly solve it. It was really, like, key to making this other um, injector that would be fitted to all the planes eventually to solve that problem entirely. So, yeah, she really was instrumental in in solving that issue for these fighter planes. That's awesome. Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, so let's see. Um, She continued to work at the RAE until her retirement in 1969, and I couldn't get a ton of detail on 
all the projects she worked on, but I did find Mm -hmm. like a list of different projects she worked on. Um, Okay. So, yeah, Barry Blake Coleman, uh, you know, wrote a blog post basically where he lists that she worked on projects related to airplane cabin air conditioning, um, internal cooling of high-speed aircraft, which sounds kind of the same, but whatever. Uh, aircraft aquaplaning, which I think is when they land on the water, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, solid fuel rockets. Um, she helped work in the design of the RAE's high altitude plant. And she evaluated liquid oxygen tanks for Britain's Blue Streak standoff nuclear missile, which was... Oh, man. Yeah, I read a little bit about that. Um, this Blue Streak was like this crazy project that never was finished. It was canceled after some time, but it was basically supposed mm-hmm. to be a missile, like an anti-nuclear bomb missile, which I'm like, gotcha. I don't know okay. how that would work, but I mean, they never finished it. <laughs> My thought would be that the idea is that you explode the nuclear bomb in the air True, where it's too right. far away. Yeah, I think, uh, I think potentially. So. Yeah. So I wonder if Mary Golda Ross and her like knew of each other. Yeah, because they both pretty much are working on identical things during World War Two. Yeah, though Mary's was more top secret. You know. Yeah, but, it's yeah. true. It's yeah. true. Maybe Mary knew of her. Right. Yeah, but she didn't know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll never know, I guess. We'll never know. Um, okay, so at one point... She- More fan fiction. <laughs> okay, I found this, but I was like, huh? <laughs> uh, at one point, she was awarded the Lightfoot Medal for Best Paper from the Institute of Refrigeration. <laughs> what? Yeah, so maybe this had to do with her air conditioning work, like... But it sounds like the in I didn't even know there was an institute of refrigeration. <laughs> I mean there's an there's gotta be an institute of everything. True, yeah. But she uh, you know, wrote a really good paper for it. So For them. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and I'm so proud. Yeah. And she eventually received an honorary doctorate from the University of Surrey in nineteen seventy. Oh, and she also worked on a bobsled for the English bobsledding Olympic team. Wait, she did she help make the bobsled yeah. or did she ride the bobsled? She helped design it. That's cool. Yeah, pretty I mean, awesome. Either way, it would have been cool. Yeah. But it's like, that means that they had to know, like, who she was and were like, oh, mm-hmm. she's a really good engineer. Let's, like, get her on board this team. That's designing our bobsled. Really crazy. Um, Okay. And then outside of work, she learned to fly, though she preferred riding her motorcycle. And she started racing cars with her husband, George, like later in life instead of the motorcycles. Uh And, of course, when she and her husband felt they were too old to race anymore, they took up target shooting at their local gun club. (laughs) (laughs) which i forgot to mention this but she also i think liked to take apart guns just like kind of with how she did with cars and like you know play with them and rebuild them and stuff Mm -hmm. yeah see how they work yeah um all right and then yeah she died in 1990 at the age of 81 um 
And she obviously had this really kind of full career as an engineer with Mm -hmm. the uh, Royal Aircraft Establishment, but she is best known for just coming up with a solution for um, the Spitfire fighter planes, a problem with them. So, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the... Amazing. Yeah, I couldn't find a lot of details on all this other stuff she did, but I'm sure there's more about it in the biography if someone could find it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, if anybody wants to send us that. Yeah. That'd be awesome. (laughs) Awesome. I loved that. Yeah. She seems like a badass that I would want to get. I know. I feel like she'd be down for, like, a strong drink. Yeah. And I would... (laughs) I would have that with her. And, like, for her wedding present to George, a bunch of the guys at her work just gave her all these tools and stuff. Like, yeah, she was just known for being the tool lady and (laughs) for racing and souping things up. Yeah, that was kind of her whole thing. Cool. Yeah, she's awesome. That's awesome. I loved that. That was wonderful. Yay, good. She seems like a very, very interesting Yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, should we work, work, work? Ah. Work, 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 work. All right. This is... Give it to me. I will. This is our women who work section where we uh, give shout outs to badass ladies making history today. Yeah. Woo. And tomorrow and recently. Woo, 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 woo. Woo, 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 woo. (laughs) Okay. So if you've been really on the internet at all... Recently, you'll know that Greta Thunberg has become a household name in the past few months because of her tireless efforts to bring attention to climate change. Yeah. However, so my shout out kind of goes to her, but more specifically, there are other young female climate activists whose names deserve to be household names. So my shout out goes to a couple of those ladies. So one is Autumn Pelche. Uh, another one's Mary Copany, and then uh, Shia Bastida. Oh, nice. Um, and thanks to at Darby J on Twitter for bringing these um, girls right, to my attention. Yeah. 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 So I'm just going to give a little shout out about each one and kind of what they're working on and what they've done. That sounds awesome. I love it. Yeah. So Autumn Pelche is a 15-year-old indigenous clean water activist. She's a member of the Wikwemekong First Nation of Northern Ontario. Wow. She's an official water protector, and she fights for universal clean drinking water. That's amazing. The youth really are amazing. <laughs> I know. A lot of we've, them, we've, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically, uh, at the since the age of eight, she has been advocating for safe waterways and drinking water for indigenous peoples in Canada and beyond. Oh, my gosh. And she's been nominated for a Children's International Peace Prize and has addressed the UN on water rights. That's so crazy. Right? I mean, I don't know what I did by the age of 15. Nothing good. Yeah, I think I just watched a lot of TV, which TBH is kind of like my life now. <laughs> um okay so that is autumn pelche and then mary copany also known as little miss flint oh yeah is 
an 11-year-old youth activist from Flint, Michigan. She's best known for raising awareness about Flint's ongoing water crisis and fundraising to support underprivileged children in her community and across the country. Wow. So she kind of came to fame when she was eight years old because she wrote a letter to President Barack Obama in order to draw attention to the Flint water crisis. Right. Um, And... Obama then did come to Flint, Michigan, which resulted in a $10 million like grant to help fix the Flint water right, crisis, which yeah. is still not really fixed. Wow. Mari Kopany continues to advocate and fundraise for the citizens of Flint through a variety of different initiatives that you can see uh, on twi- on her Twitter. Yeah. And so far, she's helped raise... for uh, children, especially children in Flint. Yeah. So you can follow her at Little Miss Flint on Twitter if you're interested in hearing more about her initiatives. It's so crazy because, like, they've, like, basically just started replacing pipes in Flint. And it's going to take, like, five more years. And it's just, like, so what are people living there supposed to do? I don't know. That's really yeah. Sad. I guess like bottled water. Yeah. Like, but, like I yeah. I don't know. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Then Shia Bastida is seventeen and is a part of the Otomi Indigenous Group, uh, and she grew up in San Pedro Tultepec, uh, a town outside of Mexico City. Oh, Sorry wow. if I butchered any of that. And she saw the effects firsthand of both extreme drought and extreme rain uh, in her area in Mexico. And after that, her family moved to New York City about four years ago. Wow. uh, Which, and since then, she's been galvanized to address the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And currently, she's one of the lead organizers of the Fridays for Future Youth Climate Strike. Oh, cool. Uh, and she's re- received the Spirit of the UN Award in 2018. Whoa, that's pretty cool. And you can follow her on Twitter at X-I-Y-E-B-A-S-T-I-D-A. Nice. Yeah, and so I just wanted to give shout-outs to the diverse yeah. group of awesome young uh, young climate activists that are trying to make this yeah, world a better so place. Yeah, so smart and amazing driven yeah and driven good for them yeah we need mm-hmm. them so <laughs> we do we do i mean we should be doing it better <laughs> like we shouldn't right. need to need them as greta's speech to the un made or her speech recently i know made clear but yeah yeah so that, those are my shout outs. I love it. That's awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah. If you like the podcast this week uh, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be asking you to go actually take our survey that we'll post on Twitter and we'll post in kind of the notes of this episode so that we can get a better idea of who our listenership is yeah. and what you guys want to hear and if you want merch and all that good stuff. So please go fill that out. It is very short. We've tried to spare your time. You can just answer whatever questions you want. <laughs> Any feedback yeah. is valuable to us. So Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I also want to thank, of course, uh, Caitlin Friesen for our yeah. art and Artichoke for our theme music. Ooh. And as always, go, go stimulate yourself. yourself.